Business Executives for National Security welcomes you to Building the Base. Here, thought leaders and practitioners discuss how we can ensure our shared security and prosperity through shaping the future of the national security industrial base. Your hosts are Silicon Valley defense expert Lauren Vidula, along with Ben's distinguished fellow and former head of acquisition for the Navy, Marines, and Special Operators, Hondo Gertz. Welcome back to Building the Base. I'm Lauren Badula here with my co-host, Hondo Gertz, and we are so excited to have with us this morning retired U.S. Air Force General, Lieutenant General Verilyn Dash Jameson. We'll go by Dash today, if that's okay. Uh, Dash last served as the Deputy Chief of Staff for Intelligence, Surveillance, and Reconnaissance, a position she held from 2016 to 2020, but served for 38 years and rose the ranks to three stars when it was especially rare for women to do so. And Dash has been a real champion of disruptive tech companies, in my opinion, both when she was in DOD and now from the outside. So excited to talk to her about both those experiences. Awesome, Dash. Welcome. Thank you. I'm so excited to be here. So 38 years, holy moly, plus uh, everybody's kind of got their story of how we got to where we got to. What's your story? Uh, well, I would tell you my story really begins with my grandmother, uh, my grandmother, Jameson. She was a woman way ahead of her time. Um, in, 1908, in 1917, she went over to France with uh, the Red Cross and was a a nurse in World War I. She was stationed with uh, Marine Corps General Smedley Butler. She was decorated by France for leading a charge in the trenches when they were being overrun. Um, and after that experience, she really found the confidence to uh, go to the Cleveland Clinic and become the head surgical nurse there. She worked her entire life. Um, and when she was 65, she, she had retired from nursing uh, at the Cleveland Clinic and decided to um, take a position with the Pennsylvania Department of Welfare for the Western section at age 65. She worked there for over 20 years. She retired um, in her mid-80s, and then she went back to her hometown because there was no medical facility or doctor left. It was an old Western Pennsylvania town dying. She then made um, house calls and nursed that town till she was 90 years old. 95, she broke her hip, and that's when we moved her closer to us. And uh, she went into a community, an Amish Community Rehabilitation Center, where she established a reading program for the, for the residents, where she established a um, literacy program for young children. And she just was an amazing woman. But what she told me from when I was extremely young was... I could do whatever I wanted to do and don't let anyone ever tell me no. She said, because people will put up barriers. Go with your heart and do whatever you want to do because the sky is the limit. And that really, you know, took to my heart. So when I was uh, in high school, I was like, I want to fly. I want to join the military. I really want to join the Navy because they have the see the world, have an adventure. And so I went to a naval recruiter, and the naval recruiter told me, we don't take women. Sitting next to him was an Air Force recruiter, and he said, young lady, please come over here. We absolutely want women in our United States Air Force. And I said, okay, that sounds like it to me. And he said, I really think, you know, when do you graduate from high school, you can, we can sign you up right now. And I said, well, tell me, how do you, how do you, 
go, I, I didn't know anybody in the military. How do you get promoted? What do you have to do? And he said, well, there's two tracks. One is if you enlist, you actually have to test for promotion for every single stripe you get. Because the other way is the easy way. You're an officer, you go to college, and you only have to take a test in college. And then you just get promoted after, after serving so many years. And I went, well, that sure sounds like the track I want. I don't have to take tests and I just get promoted? He said, yes. I said, okay, that's what I want to do. And he said, okay, well, you can go to ROTC or you can go to OTS because women were not allowed to go to the Air Force Academy when, uh, when I was talking to the recruiter. And so I was like, all right, I'll go through uh, ROTC program and join. I was very lucky. I did. And I still wanted to fly. And my debt commander was an F-4 pilot from Vietnam. And so he fought for me to get a pilot slot. There were only 30 pilot slots given to women in 1980 throughout the entire U.S. And I was fortunate enough to get one. I went to pilot training. However, my ears bleed in an unpressurized cabin. And I thought my entire dream, my entire life was over because I could not be a pilot in the United States Air Force. But again, as luck would have it, I had a business degree, and this is 1982, similar to today, to get a car loan was 16%, and we were in a massive recession. I was the only person at Columbus Air Force Base on casual status that had a business degree. Everyone else was a STEM graduate. Well, the wing commander had um, an issue. He was going to have an IG inspection, and his snack bar was in the, the red, so he said, in six weeks, can you fix this? And I said, sure, I can. I put in inventory controls. I did marketing, taste testing, figured out pricing. And at five weeks, he said, please stop. We have too much money. We're going to get in trouble. And he wrote a letter on my behalf to retain me in the Air Force. And that's the only reason I was eligible to stay in the Air Force, because I did not fulfill my contract. And he said, you need to go, and you need to go into Intel, because it's close to ops, and I think you'll really enjoy it. And that's how I, how I started. And I would tell you, never think that when you come to a crossroad where your dreams may be crushed, it's just believe in yourself and keep going because in the end, it really will all work out. How cool. Um, love hearing about your grandmother, especially. What, what a story. Um, as you know, Dash, Ben's is really focused on public-private partnerships and that intersection between the private sector and, and really the Department of Defense and national security community. So I didn't know that story about your background on the business side. And I think it makes a ton of sense because you're very good at figuring out how to translate between these communities or working at the intersection of them. And as you know, Hondo and I started this because we're so fascinated with the, what the future industrial base should look like, or this idea of helping disruptive tech companies do business with the national security and defense communities. So we think it's a really important issue. I know you've been passionate about it as well. Can you tell us why you think it's so important? I think it's really important because when you work with, especially when you work with startups, they bring such a fresh perspective uh, and such a can-do attitude, and they're so willing to partner and work side-by-side side, airmen, soldiers, sailors, and Marines. And they bring a kind of enthusiasm to regenerate and revitalize uh, the energy. And they're actually willing to sit down and do DevOps with you without a preconceived notion 
of what the end state is. And, and you know, I would tell you my experience with the F-117s in Desert Shield and Desert Storm, when I had to be the lead intel and brief all my pilots up uh, after doing all the route planning and all the threat avoidance, I had to really believe in the technology. And uh, I will never forget the first night of the war when I briefed them up, sent them out, and waited and thought, I really hope this stealth technology works. And we were working side by side with the contractors, and they were worried as well. And when every single pilot came back and there was joy and jubilation, it's when I went, gosh, emerging technology really is the key to our national defense. It is the key to our success, and we have to keep breaking down barriers. We have to have relationships, and we have to have trust. So, Dash, uh, you and I had similar experiences in, I would say, combat support, whether it's intel, acquisition, um, you know, a decade plus for me in special ops really um, thought to me that teams of teams approach and how you close down that distance and build trust. How did you approach that? How did you gain trust with uh, your operational counterparts? How did you approach that, you know, individually and, and as a leader to try and break down all those barriers that build up and then create that mistrust and then all the efficiencies that go with that. I like to chalk up my career too. I was extremely lucky and at times uh, I had great timing. So if you go back to when I said, you know, I, my wing commander wrote a letter for me and I went to Intel school and my first assignment was at Nellis Air Force Base. At the time, United States Air Force Fighter Weapons School uh, was also there, and they were building its building. So they were all in trailers. No intel person wanted to go over into the trailers. There, were, you know, it's it's the desert. There's no air conditioning. It's dusty. It's awful. And so I said, "Well, I'll go over there. I, I want to be attached to them. They seem like a great bunch of people." I didn't realize how scary that was going to be. So I was attached to the A10s and the F15 division, and I walk in, and they were like, "Lieutenant." You don't know anything, but you're at least willing to try. So we're going to teach you. And relationships and trust start right there. And they taught me and and had me running all over the place. But they taught me about threats. They taught me about U.S. systems. They taught me about flying. They took me up flying. I flew in every aircraft, that fighter aircraft the Air Force had. And I went on missions so that they really ingrained on me what was their perspective so when I was doing my work, I would understand its application. And embedded with that were contractors that were updating tapes and updating capabilities. And so I would talk to them to understand what was their perspective and why were they doing things to start to build my network and relationships and trust with them so I would understand what were the blue capabilities that were advancing so I could understand how the red could think that they could defeat it so we could make some counter tactics. That kind of relationship building from the start, I had no idea being one of the only, um, really broke down some barriers early on. And then you get the word of mouth network going for you. I then deployed to Korea for a year with the A-10s, but I already had known um, you know, about 30 from weapons school. So they already had sent, hey, she's a good egg, take care of her. I walk in first day. This is 1986. There is 
huge rioting going on in Seoul. Uh, they're trying to forge their democracy. There's protests. There's tear gas. There's rubber bullets flying. And I am thinking, what the heck did I get myself into? And a major came over and, and grabbed me up, and he said, okay, it's about an hour and a half to, to the base. We're going um, a little bit further north, uh, so strap in. And it was eye-opening. But we get there, and uh, he's got to go fly, so he drops me off at the ops desk, and the DO looks at me and he says, uh, Lieutenant, can you just sit there and, and wait a few? And I thought, sure, sir, uh, whatever, I'm scared to death. I've just gone through tear gas, rubber bullets, and everything else. And uh, he said, why don't you wait till the squadron commander comes in? He's flying. About half an hour, the squadron commander comes in, and the DO goes over to him. Mind you, I'm sitting right there. And the wing commander's like, is that our new uh, intel officer? And the DO goes, sir, we have an issue. And he said, what's the matter? She's a woman. And he said, well, BJ, I can see that she is a woman. We don't have any women here at Suwon Air Base. She'll be the only female officer on the base for the year. What do we do with her? Where do we even put her? And he says, she's a member of our squadron. She's on our team. You're going to put her in with all of us. And that set the stage for the entire year and really the rest of my career on how to approach teaming, how to approach relationships and trust, and how what you do and how you present yourself really matters. Yeah, I think, um, you know, two key pieces out of that which really resonate is one, this, this idea of curiosity, right? Getting out of your own skin, learning from whoever. And the second is you can be operationally oriented without being the operator. And so sometimes we break down this, you know, what's your job and your, your combat support or your comp. No, everybody's got a role, everybody's got a place. Uh, the more everybody focuses on the outcome, you, you power through all those inefficiencies, bias, all those other kind of things that, that can really slow down either a team or an organization. Yeah, one of the things that my squadron commander, Hank Hayden, used to always say is, it's amazing what can get done when nobody cares who gets the credit. And I think, Hondo, to your point, you're on the team, and it doesn't matter what your specific um, identifier is or what tribe you're in, you're all trying to do the same thing. Yeah, and great leaders really focus on creating that safety, right? Mm -hmm. Where you feel, okay, now it's safe for me to bring my unique talents to the table, you know, without checking a badge or checking what ribbons you have, or, or quite frankly, even rank. Mm -hmm. so it's about contribution and value. Mm -hmm. And you also talked about relationships, trust, word of mouth. And those are not only themes we've heard on our show so far, but I think drivers, when we do see adoption of non-traditional tech companies doing business with the national security communities, and even your experience breaking into these strong cultural worlds, I think, lends lessons to this idea, too. And so we talk about, we recently had Congressman Thornberry on our show and, and looked at acquisition reform and policies, authorities, and there's debate by some that maybe the authorities are there, but adoption is hindered by culture. From your experience when you were in, did you feel like you had the authorities to work with some non-traditional defense contractors, or was it more cultural barriers that you faced? I always felt I had the, the authority to work with whoever I needed to work with. Uh, but I think it's a little bit of both. Uh, and I think that, unfortunately, at times, depending on 
on the situation, certain tribes kind of fear the unknown and fear external help because they feel as though their job is internally to come up with disruptive technologies. So they can look at it as a a competitive environment versus a collaborative environment. And I think one of the things, if you are not in that tribe, you can, and I tried very hard to say, well, can't we all just see what's what? Let's, we all know status quo is not working. So let's see what, what do they have to offer? How can we team with them? How can we bring them in and make them a part of our team so it's not an external versus an internal? It's, it's all of us working and rowing together. But in order to do that, as I went up in rank, what I really began to fully understand were a couple things. One, it isn't just the operator has to have a demand. You actually have to have operations and in whatever flavor we mean when we say that. You have to have acquisition, you have to have contracting, and you have to have programming all on the same sheet from DOD. And once you have that, you actually embed this emerging technology in a great way because then industry can take you from not just demonstration, but they can cross the valley of death and actually get you to a fielded execution piece. And, and I, I've, I've seen that happen. I've been a part of that. I've also been a part of when you just couldn't get everyone on the same sheet and it just dies. And that's where I would say it's cultural because there's too much fear and competition versus collaboration. Yeah, so one of the big themes, I think, in at least my experience and 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 article Joe Votel and I wrote on this transforming from an industrial base, which is I have a need, hand me a product, very transactional, to more of an industrial network. Right, we have a network of performers all all contributing in various ways. What's your sense of that? I mean, I think Intel systems are one of the unique because they're really crossing between exquisite unique hardware and sensing capability to big IT infrastructure, AI algorithm stuff. Do you, do you sense that network philosophy is the right way to go? And have you seen that employed uh, in your career effectively? And, and how might we get after that kind of expanding that network? It, it does take a network and I have seen it. And, and I think really that is, is why DevOps is so successful and, and why we embed airmen with coders and programmers and, and tech industry is to get at partnering together on how do you address these wicked hard problems that defense has that have some aspect of a commercial capability, but to a much different, higher standard and degree. Um, and I think one of the key things is, is exposing our younger enlisted and officers much earlier to industry and working with the partnerships, not just in uh, academic problems, but literally in their squadrons and units where they're not afraid to talk to the, to industry and to contractors because they're not a decision maker, but they're establishing their network and their relationship and their trust so that as they grow experience and time, they can go back and relate and say, hey, I need you to come help us. I need you to to work with us on these issues or problems. But from an authority perspective, 
I think we need to be able to have the authority to do that without violating some kind of contract or anything. It isn't that you're going to award them something. You want to then test out what capabilities are out there, what different perspectives. How are you looking at the problem I'm dealing with, with your tech in a way that I don't know because I don't know the emerging technology that you're bringing to bear. So how do we keep this going? And I think it starts with an earlier introduction from all the military um, services, whether it be enlisted or officer, when they're really junior, to partner and get this going. Yeah, I, you know, as a career acquisition guy, it's amazing to me all the rules people say we have, which aren't actually rules, they're just kind of back to that cultural. Well, somebody told me I couldn't do that because something happened 25 years ago. Uh, and so I think there's great opportunity to break that down. The other piece is many times I think we we wrongly assume we know what we need in all cases. And, and I, I could tell you all the time in special ops, there was things I saw that I didn't know I needed it until I saw it. Right. And, and it's really hard to invent new requirements when you're in the job. You know, I think sometimes we place a little too much uh, weight on the operator to, well, tell me exactly what you need 20 years from now. That's a really, really hard question. And again, it's part of a network to even understand what the possibilities are. Yeah, I totally agree. And I think one of the things that I did see was a group that worked with industry and said, I don't know what the requirement is, but I know this. In order for me to to address this threat, I have to have information in less than 15 minutes to kill the threat. So help me figure out how do I do this? It wasn't, here's a stated requirement. It wasn't, this is what I need. It was Here's, here's my, here's what I have to affect. And here's the time that I have to affect it. Figure out how do I do that and help me, you know, partner with me on that. And, and we are still working And 15 minutes was, you know, five years ago. Now it's like, okay, now can we do it in two minutes? Can I do it in, and how does that affect my decision-making capability? And, and how do I, get rid of extraneous data so I can actually put the human in the loop to make the decision at the right time, at the right place, so that I can affect it when I need to. And that only happens when you actually have relationships and, and the confidence to say, here's what I need, and here's the time frame, and here's what I'm trying to do. Help me figure out what is the requirement. I also agree with you. There's a whole bunch of it's in the policy. And it's really not. It's somebody's interpretation of the policy. So you have to be very savvy and read through all of the policy directives to know exactly what what does it really say and what does it infer. And that's really difficult for junior people to do. Uh, so I think that leaders have to be more bold and take a little more proactive stance and say, if it isn't unethical, immoral, and illegal, just do it and beg for forgiveness. I will backstop you. I'm going to weave in a question from our audience because you talked about this um, kind of evolution of making a very critical decision in 15 minutes down to five minutes in a time when the information that's available to us is just multiplying too. So sorting through that noise and understanding what's real and what's not. And so with the private sector focused on leveraging publicly available information 
Some talk about it as open source. How has that changed the ISR mission and landscape? Or how do you sort through that noise or work with those private sector providers to take advantage of it in that process? I would tell you, I think it's my opinion. I think it's flipped uh, Intel upside down for a greater good. We used to only look at classified information. If it wasn't classified, we discounted it. Now we fully understand the sensing insights that uh, publicly available information can give you, whether it be social media, texts, discussions, uh, tweets, and it really gives you great warning and, and, and indicators of what potentially might be happening to where you can look at other sources to validate or put on a collection mean to see if, is there some there there? And I think that for I, for the Intel community and specifically for Air Force ISR, it has helped us focus our limited assets in a much tighter way to ensure that you do focus on what does the decision maker need from a positively identification PID factor make those decisions in those critical timeframes. And and shifting gears a bit, we've talked about your 38 years in the military, which again is just incredible, but you've been out about two years now in the private sector. Has anything surprised you about your experience in the private sector, whether sitting on boards or coaching companies? Yeah, I would say um, that's a great question. Let me give you a couple positives and a couple challenges. Uh, Positives is I was shocked at just how willing the tech community really is to sit down and roll up their sleeves and dive into wicked hard problems and how much they are willing to give just to get their foot in the door gratis. You know, they're just like, I'm all in because I want to do something greater than myself. I want to do something greater than the bottom line. It wasn't all about the money. It was about the value that they sensed. And that really spoke to my heart. Um, I also was pleasantly surprised at just the diversity of thought and perspectives that they bring on how to look at problems that we've dissected a thousand, you know, a million different ways. And they bring, you know, a trillion different ways to look at it. And I I found that very inspiring. Uh, on On the challenge side, my heart goes out to them because I now see how freaking hard it is to actually get to a decision maker. You have to brief like 5,000 people to actually get to somebody who maybe will give you a shot at showing and demonstrating your capability. And, and we got to get out of that. Um, and then the second one is back to what I thought is the interpretation of policy that stifles them. And somebody has got to take a risk and say, no, give them a chance. Just give them a chance. So, Dash, it's, it's been a, uh, you know, interesting journey just in this conversation. We covered curiosity. We've covered kind of humility. Just roll up your sleeves. Find, the, you know, don't look for the best looking trailer. Find the trailer with folks doing something. Uh, we talked about boldness of action, cutting through policy. You know, many of us really um, benefited from mentors early in life as you say, to shape your trajectory in ways you don't you think about. You mentioned a few, but I'd be interested, in one, in, in what other times in your career you just had that kind of shaping mentoring that, that, that you look back on. And then what's your thought on mentoring, particularly as a senior female officer? Sometimes I know some of my female teammates, you know, I only need to have female mentors or we kind of get 
I, I would say we get some of our biases, even in mentoring, um, maybe don't give us the full opportunity. What's your sense on that? Having both been a mentee and a mentor, grown up in a big institution. Well, um, let me let me take the last one first. Since I had no female mentors, I, I don't look at it. I will only ment. I believe mentor mentee relationships are two ways, and you have to have a relationship of trust with the person because. The mentor is going to learn just as much, if not more, as the mentee. And it has to be a give and take both ways. And and so I think it's really about who are you wanting to have that kind of relationship with on both sides. Um, so I, I will say, me personally, I, I don't mentor people I don't know because I don't think that that's helpful. Uh, I actually am mentoring about 10 folks right now, less hmm, most most are male, uh, but I have no issue. I have several females that I mentor, but it, it's about a two-way street. And it isn't about, hey, that's right or wrong. It's really, who can you call when you are down and out? Because everyone's going to call you when you're doing great. And, and they'll listen to you. And they will be honest and say, okay, you screwed that up. So what are you going to do next? Because I believe in you. I believe that you're going to be able to do this and get through this in, your, in what you think right now is your darkest moment because you're strong. And, and, you, and you continue to do that. You challenge them with, hey, have you thought of? And they'll challenge you back. Hey, uh, you know, that, didn't, that wasn't helpful or that was really helpful. Have you considered? And you get this back and forth going. And I guess I learned that, you know, thinking about it. From as I look back on who mentored me and, and what did they do, and it was how was I included? And I remember, <laughs> I remember one incident where I uh, I screwed up, I screwed up pretty bad in my opinion. You know, I there I was, and a different service senior officer said to me, pulled me aside and said, "Okay, I still believe in you. You got a good judgment head on your shoulders." Figure out why that went wrong. Pick yourself up. Your character isn't measured on how well you do. It's how well you do after you have failed. So figure it out. But no, if you need help, I'm here. Give me a call. And that really, really stuck with me. Um, It also really stuck with me, as you know, that first squadron commander who said, I don't care that she doesn't look like us. She doesn't isn't like us. She doesn't have the same experience of, as us. She actually doesn't even have the same mission, technically, task as us. But she's one of us. And so it opened my eyes to mentor people who are not in my field or that look like me or have the same experience. And I, I took that to heart because many of my mentors, none, were in the intelligence community. Uh, and all of them were in different services and not not just the Air Force. So so I look at it as it, diversity of thought and experience is really, really important. And it's a buzzword now. But if we look back in time, it's always been there. 
Mm -hmm. And you've paved the way for women like me or folks who are interested in careers that are historically male dominated, right? And and we talked about how you didn't have anyone to look up to. And so I know so many people look up to you, including our listeners. And so I'm I'm curious if you have advice for them, um, even breaking into the fields of finance, defense, national security, tech, and, and then balancing this importance of diverse thought and, and groups that can solve hard problems. So any advice to our listeners about how to rise the ranks um, when the odds are against you? Well, I look at it like the odds aren't ever really against you. You just have to make the odds in your favor. And you have to be really, you have to put in the time to know and be an expert in your craft. And you have to, you have to work at being a good team member. You have to be a good follower because good followers become great leaders and you have to seize the opportunity when it's given. And it, it doesn't matter if it's in finance or if it's in um, marketing or if it's in um, acquisition or intelligence. You, you just have to, to be a good follower, a good listener, a good team member. And you have to remember, it's amazing what you can get done when no one takes when nobody cares about who gets the credit because that shiny penny that you think nobody's noticing all the efforts you're doing, you really do get noticed and you will rise and continue in your field. So I, I can't pass up with such an accomplished strategic intelligence person here with us, not asking your perspective on kind of world events, whether it's economic or national security and, and, and not what exactly what's going to happen, but your sense of um, uh, the challenges we're going to see and what does that imply in terms of us breaking down these bureaucratic barriers and figuring out how to get everybody aligned, whether it's tech startups or traditionals or Air Force or Navy or whatever. Do you sense uh, with that world kind of view changing, is that going to drive us together or is it going to drive us apart? How do you, how do you one, see you know, strategically where things are going and then what the implications are to this whole national security infrastructure. I'm not a history major and I, and I never quote anybody cause I can't remember you know, who said what, but um, this summer I decided to read some, some books uh, on um, I'm Intel. So on some Intel spies, whether they be Russian or American and what I have found in the several books that I've read is if we go back to the early 20th century and we look at the teens in the 20s and the roaring stock market and everything, and then you saw the rise of nationalism and the separation and the huge division uh, inside different societies with people on the right and people on the left. And you look at today and you saw in the 20s the, or in the the huge rise of our stock market and where everything was. And then you started to see the separation and the division between the right and the left. I see a lot of commonalities. Unfortunately, what happened, you know, we had World, we had World War II um, and, and we had fascism try to take over from democracy. I really know that hope is not a strategy, but I, I look to maybe we can learn some lessons from the past and we don't have to go down the same road. And I do think that we have to be courageous. We are the best, greatest country in the world that people aspire to because 
we are free and we have freedoms and we have a democratic society and we can't lose that. And, and it's cyclical. We all, you know, history, you go through these cycles. So when I look at strategically at the future, I think we will come out of this. And I do think that strong economies, uh, a trained and employed workforce, and I believe high tech can actually give us a different way to manufacture, uh, retraining uh, our, our society, our, our, our young, our youth. We're seeing companies say you don't need to have a degree to do everything and not fearing technology that's going to replace you, but embracing how is it going to enable you. I think the future does lead us to a better economic output, which then if you have a better economic output, somehow you feel a little more emboldened to embrace the differences in a much more collaborative and cohesive way than where right now we're kind of at a standoff with each other. So I think we're going to go through it. I don't think we've hit the bottom. I think we will and will come out much stronger than we are today. If we look at, I'll just say it, if we look at China right now today, look at what's happening. I mean, we're seeing public demonstrations because they are refusing to pay mortgage payments because their housing, their apartments are not finished and they haven't been finished in years. And they are seeing the default of the financial industry backing some of these building projects. She has got a big issue on his hands. If you look at what happened with COVID, you can look at our country and see how at least we were free to express what we wanted. Look at China. The, the massive retaliation of the complete lockdown and the resistance to change that policy. They've doubled down with the policy. They've got massive problems ahead. So I go, we always look internally and go, oh my gosh, everyone's going through a time right now. And if we look at history, everyone went through a time before. I do, ha- I do believe the glass is half full and we're going to come out much stronger economically. And then therefore defense will be stronger. Mm-hmm. So, wow, we've talked about teaming, the importance of trust and communication between different communities. I really liked your idea of empowering future leaders, too, whether it's through the ranks in the military or working with companies and across different sectors. And um, I think you've given us some great ideas as we think through strengthening what we need for a future industrial network. So thank you so much, Dash, for your time today and telling your story. I do have one last thing that I, I would like to offer. We have got to bring back respect and appeal to be a civil servant. It isn't just about people in uniform. It's about those who serve our country and are dedicated. And and so I think one of the things for the industrial network we have to look at, is there a possibility to bring the Ivy League schools or the top 10 universities or HBCUs or state schools to actually have majors in industrial organization and design to get this, to get so that people want to be civil servants again because they're respected, they're highly valued, and it's very prestigious. I will end with, I've talked to many high school graduates and college graduates that say, hey, I wanted to be a data scientist or I want to be a data scientist because I want to work for Google, Amazon, or Apple. I have never heard a single person say, I did it because I wanted to be a civil servant. We have to change that. And the industrial network that you described 
has to have them as a backbone to make this successful. That's such an important point. And, and we've talked about with, with former guests too, this almost shifting appreciation for national security and defense and the connectivity to prosperity. So I'm hoping we'll see more of that. And, and that's something we want to do with the show too, is create the excitement for solving really hard problems. That's what the technical community likes to do. And you get that in the national security community. So that's a great point. Yeah. I mean, when, when done right, there are many ways to serve the nation. Right. Some in uniform, some out. None's better or worse. They're just different. We need to bring everybody together. That's such a such an important point. It's a it's a critical partnership to link each together, so that when we look at our society, it isn't just a legislative, executive, or judicial government. It's actually the people's government because you are respected by serving, and, and we've got to get back to that. That is so important. Well, thank you so much, Dash, for taking the time with us this morning. And I know our our listeners will be excited to hear your story. Awesome. Thanks, Dash. Thank you so much.